And again, welcome everybody to the very unusual August meeting of the Whitechapel Society, which is our first through the webinar. So we hope that you enjoy it. Um, and I'm delighted that Julian has decided to join us tonight. Thank you, Julian. Um, he is the author of a book called The Boss of Bethnal Green, which is the first biography of Joseph Merceron. Now, he'll let me know if I've said that wrong. That's right. Um, Joseph Merceron. He said yeah, you, he had Huguenot roots. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Fourth, so, fourth generation. Fourth generation. So he was a Regency London businessman, a magistrate, a local politician, and a crime lord. And in the 2019 fictionalized version of Merceron became a lead villain in the television show Poldark, which is a BBC TV show here. Many of you will have watched it. So Julian has lived in London for 35 years and has developed a passion for our capital's history while pursuing a city career. So The Boss of Bethnal Green is his first book and was one of the Evening Standard's best London books of 2016. And I'm glad to say he's currently working on a biography of another Regency London figure. We look forward to that. So just to whet your appetite, here's a couple of reviews of um, Julian's book. The first is from Spittlefield's Life, and it says, it fills an important gap in the history and consequently the perception of the East End. Too often the poverty and inhuman housing conditions of the 19th century are seen as a phenomena that arose naturally here, yet they were imposed by those in power seeking their own gain. And Joseph Merceron was perhaps more responsible than any other individual for this human catastrophe. And the Times Literary Supplement goes on to say, more than just a picture of a narcissistic personality with no regard whatever for the truth, the author has understood the wider issues underlying the social chaos. This is a fine book and deserves to become the standard work on a London district which is still today subject to various sorts of threat. Ladies and gentlemen, let me hand you over to Julian Woodford. Thank you, Tony. Um, so I will press the share screen button and hopefully magic will happen. Has that, has that That's worked, fine. Tony? Yeah, we can see that fine. Brilliant. Okay, well, so, so first of all, thank you, Tony, for that lovely introduction, and, and thank you all for inviting me this evening or, or this afternoon, if you're the other side of the water. Um, I, I want to talk about um, five things today, but, but as Tony alluded to in, in that introduction, we're, we're talking about an individual who, who was uh, brash, charismatic, uh, somewhat devious, egotistical, uh, I'll go so far as to say lying, uh, and a manipulator of, of popular democracy. Uh, I say that up front, I'm, I'm not going to be political um, this evening, but I'll, I'll allow you to just ponder over the next um, 40 minutes or so as I talk uh, as to what parallels there might be in, in today's society, both, both in the UK and elsewhere, uh, and both in, in local and national politics, in, 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 certainly in the UK and the USA. Um, so I'm going, I'm going to try and answer five questions, if I can get... Uh, no, this is interesting, because my, uh, my slides are now not moving, Tony, so it's the first glitch of the evening. Let me just see. 
Ah, okay, I have to press different buttons when I've shared the screen. Um, so five questions. First of all, why did I write the book in the first place? And I'll, I'll go back. I wrote it actually 15 years ago or so. Um, Joseph Merceron certainly was not known to me when I, when I discovered the story. So I suspect he's not known to, to many of you. So I'll talk a little bit about who was this guy. Um, the third question really is how on earth did he get away with it? Because um, you'll, you'll learn that he got away with it for an awfully long time. Um, fourthly, what sort of legacy, uh, and, and Tony quoted from um, the gentle author's blog, I think, in, in terms of the legacy that, that Merceron left behind in the, in the Bethnal Green area. And I'll talk about that a little bit. And, and as I alluded to, some parallels for today. So um, where did this story start for me? Um, it started back in 2005, and I, I decided to write a book um, about the history of London, and I was reading around the subject. And I read this lovely book, and many of you will probably have seen it and read it, it, it A Social History of London by Roy Porter. And buried uh, in a paragraph in, in Roy Porter's book, it, and it is a single paragraph, and it talks about uh, Bethnal Green, and it says Bethnal Green was a law unto itself. Um, Joseph Mercer on a Brick Lane JP, Justice of the Peace, was a local political boss who controlled all the pubs, kept them open all night, uh, organised dog fights, bull baiting, all the time diverting parish funds into his own pocket. Uh, in 1818, Justice finally caught up with him and he was imprisoned. Um, and Bethnal Green's turbulent democracy was replaced by a sober, close vestry. And I think that's probably what, what Porter said. And I, I sort of passed over this without thinking too much about it, but I'd never, I'd never heard of Merceron before. Um, and I think I just remarked in my head as to, oh, I haven't, I haven't heard about this chap before. And then bizarrely, the very next day, I came across the name Merceron again in, in a more private capacity, and I was doing some research. Uh, on, on another project and came across a number of legal cases at the National Archives. And Merceron's name was listed as the defendant in all of these legal cases. And I, because it's a slightly unusual name, I recognized it and thought, oh, was that the guy I was reading about yesterday? And I looked and it was, and that sort of caught my interest a little bit. And I started looking on the internet and found Almost everywhere I looked in terms of books on London's history or true crime stories for, for that period, um, there's a brief mention of Merceron and it's often a, a single sentence or, or a paragraph and if you're really lucky you'll get half a page or something. Um, but he is, he is quite sort of universally name-checked, but no more than that. And the, the thing that was really odd about it was that all of these little references were almost identical and the wording was sufficiently uniform to make me think this has all come from the same place. So I kind of poked around because I thought actually there's a story here. Um, and eventually um, my poking took me to this lovely couple, which is some of you will recognize Sydney and Beatrice Webb, who were part of the early uh, labour movement. They were members of the Fabian Society, friends of George Bernard Shaw, etc. Um, Sidney Webb became a, a labour MP in, in the early 20th century. Beatrice Webb was more of a, a social scientist and a historian, and she's very much one of my heroes as a, as a historian, both in terms of 
the things she did as a as a as a woman, but also um, she was able to do things with data that you know pre computers and pre databases that that people had never thought of. And I certainly learned a lot as a historian from in, in terms of methodology from from the way Beatrice Webb went about her researches. So the, the Webbs, it turns out, wrote um, a, a nine-volume history of local government in England, which is which is still, I think, seen as the bible, probably, of of history books about local government in England. It's you know, it's it's almost a bookshelf on its own when you when you stick these books together. It's incredibly detailed. Um, and they wrote the first volume of it in, in 1906, and it's called The Parish and the County, and it explains how parish government and um, county local government worked in England, going back all the way to Tudor times and, and beyond up to Norman Conquest. And they wrote a chapter of this first volume uh, called The Rule of the Boss, and it turns out that chapter is, is a little mini biography of, of Joseph Merceron. And they discovered Merceron's story, and you have to bear in mind that the Webbs were uh, effectively writing a manifesto for the Labour Party, uh, a manifesto for socialism. Um, at a time, this is this is ten years before even the Russian Revolution, so this is very early days uh, for for the socialist movement in the UK, and they were looking for examples of. Um, what happens in their eyes if you let local people run their affairs without any central control. So, so the webs were all about everything's got to be centralised, everything's got to be run from central government, uh, everything's got to be planned. Uh, so think, think the early sort of Russian totalitarian uh, kind of approaches to, to, to state planning. Um, and they were looking for examples of what happens, what goes wrong if you let people run their own affairs. And, and in this case, they decided that Merceron was an example of the corruption that happens if you allow uh, a sort of mini dictator to get into power in a local area and, and have so much power that nobody can get rid of them. Um, and I, it, so I, I sort of learned where the story came from, but the webs were um, not biographers by any means, and they were not really interested in the personal story, and they were not interested at all in in uh, who Merceron really was and where he came from and where he got his money from uh, and what his sort of family background was. So it's quite a dry story, um, and it took me a while to work out where they got it from. And then I learned that, that Beatrice Webb in the eighteen 80s, early early 1890s, was a rent collector uh, in the East End, and she worked for the uh, East End Dwellings Company, which was which is a social housing enterprise in the East End, and, and some of their buildings are still there in in Bethnal Green, um, uh, including um, the the aptly named Merceron House, so uh, which is built on his former garden in Bethnal Green. So Beatrice Webb was, was running around the East End collecting rent from these social housing developments in the 1880s, and she would have heard about Mercer on then. The Webbs then, uh, in the 1890s, went to New York on a fact-finding mission uh, to learn about uh, other models of local uh, government and, and democracy. And when they were in New York, they discovered uh, what was called the Tammany Hall movement, which was a, a sort of democratic party machine, if you like, 
and probably one of the early examples of, of a party machine that kind of runs itself and runs candidates and runs uh, elections, etc. And at, 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 in, in the 1860s, uh, about the time of the American Civil War, the Tammany Hall movement was run by a guy called William Tweed, who was known throughout New York as Boss Tweed. And uh, Beatrice clearly got the word boss from there and in the context of a political boss. Um, and she noticed the, the similarities between the Merceron story and, and the Tweed story, which was 50 years later, but on a sort of even grander scale in terms of the financial corruption that, that Tweed was involved in. And that gave her the title for her little chapter of this book. So it's called The Rule of the Boss. Um, and she draws this parallel between 1860s New York and um, early 1800s Specimen Green. Um, so that, that was where the webs got the story from. Um, and, and so I, I got the, the bare bones of the story. I found um, most of the original sources. I decided this was the book I was going to write. Um, but I kind of then got a bit stuck because I didn't have, as I, as I said earlier, I didn't have any of the softer stuff that you really need to turn something like that into a book or, or indeed add anything to, to the great job that the webs had done. So I, I, I kind of went out on a limb a little bit and thought, if I, Merceron's an unusual name, if I uh, have a look in the electoral register, I'll see what other Mercerons exist and maybe some of them will turn out to be related to this chap. So I delved into the electoral register and it turned out there were, I think, eight families only in the UK with the name Merceron. So I wrote to all of them and said, are you by any chance descended from this evil man from Bethnal Green? Mm -hmm. And three days later, my telephone rang and uh, there was a little old lady on the other end of the telephone who announced that she was... Uh, Joseph Merceron's great-great-granddaughter, um, that she would be delighted to talk to me, um, but I'd better come quick because she was 93. Um, so I hopped in the car and drove down to um, Ramsbury in Wiltshire, where she lived. Uh, she kind of looked me up and down a bit, um, uh, like any sensible person would, I think. Um, made me a cup of tea and said, so I expect you're going to tell me that that beastly Beatrice Webb got it all wrong about my ancestor. Um, by, and by that time, I knew enough to know that, um, if anything, Beatrice Webb had probably undercooked the story. And so I thought I'd better be honest and expected to get back in the car and drive back to London uh, straight away without my tea. Um, but actually, she, she said, um, oh, well, if that's the case, then you must write about it and I'll help you. Um, and she then had this little story about how she felt the whole family had been cursed uh, for the previous 150 years or so because of um, his, his evil doings. So this lovely lady helped me out. She gave me some useful and interesting family papers and then told me that I needed to meet her nephew, who was... Um, the sort of custodian of all the family papers and the only problem being that he was in the army and, and currently serving in Australia. So it turned out I had to wait another year uh, before he came back from, from Australia and I, I went to meet him at his barracks in uh, Oldershot and he disappeared up into the attic and came back with this enormous tin box. So sort of historian's wonderful, wonderful moment as this chap came downstairs bearing a 200 year old tin chest 
full of all sorts of interesting papers um, uh, and I had the luxury of being able to go through them with him and he, he never even opened the box his father had left it to him. Um, so while I was very happily going through all these papers he, he disappeared again um, and came back with um, his arm in a sock um, and I'll, I'm going to pause there because I, I just want to talk a little bit about Mercer on himself, but I'll come back to, to Daniel Mercer on and his sock in a, in a few moments. Um, but, but broadly, I've now got enough to start writing this book. So I, I, let me talk a little bit about uh, Joseph Mercer on himself. And I, I, I always like to uh, announce him as, as an amalgam of these three lovely gentlemen. And some of you will recognise them and some of you may not. So I'll, I'll tell you. So on the, on the left, uh, this is Robert Maxwell. Um, whose daughter obviously has been in the news quite a bit in the last few weeks. Um, so Robert Maxwell, uh, emigrant from Eastern Europe around the time of the Second World War, became a very successful businessman, uh, an MP, uh, owned uh, an enormous publishing empire, including the Daily Mirror, Oxford University Press, uh, Oxford United Football Club, I think. Um, and then, uh, you know, disappeared off his yacht and drowned and, and it was discovered that he'd plundered the pension fund. So, uh, you know, an example of a, a, a highly corrupt, I think, by, by any standards, uh, but, but ostensibly, um, you know, straight up businessman for much of his career, enough, enough to be accepted into the higher echelons of society and, you know, treated uh, as an MP and, and all, this, all the rest of it. And then at the, at the sort of slightly more down market end, the craze, who uh, obviously, you know, were slightly uh, more open about their uh, misdeeds, etc., but also were accepted into the, the top end of society and had a lot of very influential friends for a, a good part of their careers. Uh, there's something of both of these, uh, the craze and uh, um, Maxwell in, in Joseph Merceron's career. And the, and the other correction with, connection with the craze, of course, is, is that their funerals were all at St. Matthew's Bethnal Green, where um, Joseph Merceron's was the, was the very first, I think, gangster funeral, effectively, in, in the East End. And, and both the craze, though they weren't buried there, had their funerals, about all three Cray brothers had their funerals at St. Matthew's. So that's, you know, who, who, who Merceron was in overview. Um, a little potted biography, born in 1764, uh, at a very young age, his, his, uh, he, he was 16, uh, his father was a silk weaver turned pawnbroker in Brick Lane and did very well out of it at a time when um, you know, the economy was crashing. I think getting out of weaving and getting into pawnbroking, he picked his, he picked his moment perfectly for that. Uh, ended up with about 50 slum properties, so he became a slum landlord. This is this is Merthron's father. Died in 1780, and um, young Joseph was 16 at that point and picked up not not the pawnbroking business, but picked up the management of this little mini property empire and became a rent collector. And by 1783, when he was 19, he was collecting the rents on 500 properties in the East End, and uh, that made you a pretty influential person with real power. Uh, by, by 1786, when he was 22, he was chairing the Bethnal Green Vestry, um, which is the equivalent of a council, um, or, or, or you know, that, that was the unit of local government, effectively. 
uh, and that meant that he, he was also the treasurer, so the entire funds of what would now be the Tower Hamlets uh, essentially passed through his own hands uh, with very little, if any, oversight from anybody else. He became a magistrate of, Mid of Middlesex, uh, which is that catapults him to sort of county level government by 1795. So in his very early 30s, he was a magistrate of Middlesex. Um, and, and things just went on and on from there. So, so by the mid 1810s, he pretty much ran much of the East End uh, from a uh, position of uh, myriad uh, uh, positions of responsibility. So if, if there was a, a job uh, in local government, he either had it or he gave it to one of his uh, minions. So he controlled absolutely everything that went on. And, and the, the story really pivots from 1810 when a new vicar uh, arrived in Bethnal Green, a chap called Joshua King, who decided to take him on. Um, and and the, the story of the next few years is a battle between King and Merceron, which uh, briefly ends in Merceron going to prison, um, but only for two years and then comes out and, and sort of takes control all over again for another 20 years. So he eventually dies, a, a relatively old man in his mid-70s, um, and with the exception of the two years in prison, pretty much untouched by, by everybody else. So uh, that's, a, that's a very sort of potted uh, history of Merson's life. A, a, a quick bit of kind of East End geography, and I, I'm guessing that most of you will, will know or recognise many of these places, and I'll, I'm going to counter through it relatively quickly, but it, it helps anchor the story in terms of where, where we're talking about and how that translates today. So the, the picture you can see is, it's the, the cinnamon curry house on Brick Lane, and some of you will have been there, I expect. Uh, it, it, it describes itself as the king of kings of all curries on Brick Lane, and that, it, it's not the same building, but that's the site at which Joseph Merceron was born. It's like it's number 134 Brick Lane, so it's kind of halfway along Brick Lane, uh, not far down from the Truman Brewery, um, probably 50, 40, 50 yards away from the Truman Brewery. Uh, so that's where it all happened. And he, he was born there and lived, um, certainly had an office there for his entire life, although he physically moved his residence uh, to, to Bethnal Green itself, near where the Museum of Childhood now is when, when he became wealthy. Uh, so geography, this is John Roke's lovely map of the, uh, well, his map is of the entire city of London, but this is the bit that is the north end of Brick Lane. Um, I, will, I will point out some little bits, but broadly Brick Lane is the, is the road going up the, the centre there. Um, so think of it as the, the, the spine of an open book. Um, the left-hand page, as you look at it, is Spitalfields. Uh, the right-hand page uh, to, to the right of the red arrow is, is Bethnal Green Parish. Uh, Brick Lane running north-south. At that point, this, this map was drawn in 1746, I think. Um, and Brick Lane was pretty much the eastern boundary of the built-up area of London at that point. And you can see at least one field to the side and to the north there. Um, if this map was spread out and you could see further out to, to Whitechapel, um, Mile End and beyond, you'd see lots of fields to, to the right of this map. Um, but what this demonstrates is that is that the, um, the building, and of course Merceron's father as a slum landlord, was, was starting to happen outside this, the pressure of population growth. Um, London's population 
went up by 50% or so between, um, I think, 1760 and 1800. So there was massive pressure uh, within the existing bounds of the city. And broadly outside the city walls, people were digging up fields and, and building houses. Um, this peculiar parallelogram type shape, um, we're going to see again and again as we go through this story. Uh, it's, a, it's an estate called the Red Cow Estate, so at the very north of Brick Lane. Um, the northern boundary is, is today's Bethnal Green Road. Um, it's the bit uh, on, on the left-hand side as you look at it, it's the area around uh, Slater Street where the, where the market is. Um, so it's still a very kind of run-down area, the developers haven't really got to it yet. To the right-hand side, um, you see that field, um, and uh, to the extreme right of the screen um, is St Matthew's Church. It may be, it may be under the um, pictures of cameras at the moment, but you'll see a red circle. In, inside the red circle is St Matthew's Church. And that was built um, in about 1740, very deliberately positioned roughly halfway between Brick Lane and Bethnal Green, i.e. the Village Green, um, half a mile or so to the east, because it was known that that whole area was going to fill up um, with houses and, and the church would then be you know, in the heart of that community. So uh, that's St Matthew's Church, it's still there, it's a rather lovely building, although it's in the middle of a bit of a grotty area, um, but a beautiful building still. Um, uh, it was totally, uh, the interior and the churchyard were totally destroyed in the Second World War, but, but what you see there is broadly uh, as it was built in the 1740s. Uh, much of the action in the book takes place um, slightly bizarrely in the church because the, the vestry, uh, as its name suggests, met in the vestry room of the church. So that was the, as near as a, a town hall as the, as the community had in those days. Uh, this is uh, Richard Horwood's map of 1802 uh, showing pretty much the same area. Um, so there's Brick Lane again going up the middle uh, and there's the, the parallelogram shape of the Red Cow Estate. And the, the Red Cow Estate um, was, the, was the bit that Merceron's father uh, effectively was the, uh, the owner of much of it and, and became the rent collector on all of it and Joseph Merceron inherited that responsibility. So you can see uh, the right-hand side of that is starting to fill up with houses in 1802, and over the next 10 years or so, all of those uh, streets were filled in. Mm. So there'd be, I guess, four or 500 houses in that shape, um, all of which he was the landlord on. Um, and some of those, that street pattern is still there today, broadly speaking. Many of those streets with the same names. Just picking out a couple of other highlights to, to anchor your geography. That's Truman's Brewery down in the red circle uh, there. Uh, that has now, uh, the brewery buildings have spread to both sides of the road and, and the photograph I think I'm about to show you. Yeah, so that's, that's the Truman buildings on the other side of the road, on the eastern side of Brick Lane, um, that were built at around that time, early 1800s. And Merceron's birthplace is just to the right of, of those buildings. Um, so that's, uh, I think, St Matthew's Church again. Um, I now change tack completely. You'll be wondering what on earth is that slide there for. So I, I, going back to writing the book, I, I kind of got my story. I'd got the original sources. I'd got this tin box full of um, helpful family papers and I got 
some relatives who were very happily collaborating with me and I was just trying to think how am I going to write this and what sort of style is it and I kept I kept I sort of come up against the Cray twins obviously and I, I started watching all these old gangster movies to try and get a sense of what the stories were and what the plots were and to my slight surprise I, I, I came I'd seen this film before but I, I re-watched it and realized that the plot of On the Waterfront is almost identical to, to the plot I was talking about a minute ago, where this priest comes in and tackles a corrupt local official. Um, so in, in On the Waterfront, it, it's, it's not Marlon Brando's character, it's the minor, sort of minor characters of, of Lee J. Cobb and Carl Malden. Lee J. Cobb is, it plays this uh, corrupt union official on the docks. And Carl Molden is a priest who comes in and they, they wait, they're waging a battle in the background, a sort of good and evil battle while, while Marlon Brando's doing his stuff uh, in the foreground. And it just, it just felt quite nice to me that this, uh, the plot of the film was, was mirroring what I was seeing in, in the Merceron story. And there were, almost every film I watched, there were uh, odd little similarities and you, know, you can see a bit of the untouchables in you know Merceron got caught for the small crime in, in, in a way that Al Capone did because uh, they could never get into the big ones um, there's a little bit of Main Streets in there uh, there's certainly plenty of the surprise in there um, you know one of the things Merceron was doing was running uh, brothels down on the docks in Shadwell uh, and he, as, as chair of the licensing magistrates of the Tower Hamlets, he made sure that all of these brothels were licensed, um, but made sure that a lot of very reputable places that might compete were, were shut down. Uh, and it seemed impossible for anybody to, to do anything about that, despite uh, a great many complaints. So there were lots of um, parallels to this sort of gangster um, genre. Um, and my only problem, um, was that I have and still have not been able to find a picture of, of Mr. Merceron, which I find really odd for somebody who was as well known uh, in his time as he was. And this is this is the golden age of caricature, of course. And I've been able to find pictures of almost every character who I've ever come across who, who lived and worked in that era. And I've never been able to find one of Joseph Merceron, um, nor have his family. We've got a photograph of his son. Um, of course, Mercer on sort of just missed, he died in 1839, so he really just missed out on photography. Um, so we've had to make do with kind of um, mental images of him. Um, and when we came to the book, it was a bit of a, uh, the first question everyone asks is, have you got a photograph of him or a portrait of him? Uh, so we ended up commissioning an artist uh, called Joe McLaren. We gave him a few prints and said, this is the sort of thing that we think he looks like. Can you, can you design something for the book cover? So Joe came up with this lovely picture, which I think captures when I saw it. I thought this is perfect. And the, the pigtail uh, did it for me. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure most of them didn't have a pigtail, but it, it just makes it look perfect for me. And the, the sort of jointy uh, angle of his hat um, and his uh, aggressive looking profile. Um, and of course, this was, was the time of silhouettes as well. So we thought we, we went with that for the cover, but it's, it's not actually Merceron, but it's what we think he, he should have looked like. Um, so what the, why on earth did this chap get away with what he did for so long? And as I told you, he was um, in power. He was running the best, best not running vestry at the age of uh, 23. 
and he died at the age of 75 um, and he had two years in prison but apart from that he was broadly running Bethnal Green and much of the East End and I, it, it took me a long time to kind of work out how he got away with it and the, the answer came uh, in my visit to, to his great 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 grandson um, and I left you 15 minutes or so with this image of, of, of Daniel Mercer on coming down from the attic with his hand in a sock um, and uh, before I tell you what was in the sock, um, uh, another gangster movie, Scarface. Um, and the link here is uh, I came across what to me is the real Scarface, or certainly the Scarface of, of the Mercer on story. Um, and the similarity between those two pictures is, is quite marvellous. Um, so this is James Hadfield, some of you may have heard of James Hadfield, who was, as it says here, a private in the 15th Light Dragoons, who on the 13th of May, sorry, 15th of May, uh, 1800, stood up in the Drury Lane Theatre, um, pulled a gun out of his pocket and took a pot shot at George III. Um, luckily, missed. Um, and Sheridan, who owned the theatre, um, allegedly composed a, new, a couple of new verses to God Save the King on the spot to celebrate the occasion. And James Hatfield uh, then became famous because he was found guilty um, of treason, but was uh, sort of semi-acquitted because of dementia responsibility. And it was the first example of the diminished responsibility um, defence being successfully used. So instead of being hung, drawn and quartered, which would have happened to anybody else, he was put in Bedlam. Uh, and he was quite a young man when he, when he was put in Bedlam in 1800. And I think he died something like 40 years later. So he spent 40 years in, in Bedlam uh, composing poems to his pet squirrel, or squirrels, as I imagine he had quite a few. Um, so why, why is all this relevant? Um, well, the, the reason is um, that what Daniel Merceron pulled out of his sock uh, that day in, in 2005 was James Hadfield's gun, um, which was quite a moment for me. Um, so he, he, he literally pulled it out of his sock because he keeps it in his sock drawer. Um, and da Daniel is a par was a padre in the army. Uh, so it was okay to keep a gun in your sock drawer, apparently. Um, and he, he said, I have no idea why we've got this, but apparently this is the gun that was used in the assassination attempt on George III in 1800. Um, I have no idea why it's in the family or where we got it from, but perhaps you can help me find out. So we, um, we got on the internet there and then, and in the course of an hour or so, we worked out the connection and pretty much worked out the whole story, which was that the, the gun was picked up by a man called Major Wright. Major was his Christian name, bizarrely. Um, and Major Wright was several things. He, he, he was, first of all, and, and importantly, uh, he was Joseph Merceron's clerk. Um, and I knew that because uh, I'd come across him elsewhere. Secondly, he was... Uh, in, 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 in the context of his role as clerk to the magistrates of the Tower Hamlets, he was running spies for the government. Um, and this is 10 years after the French Revolution. So uh, you've got all these secret societies in London 
uh, like the London Corresponding Society, but but a number of uh, more radical and perhaps more revolutionary societies that were uh, pretty much underground. And this is the beginnings of the Secret Service. This is the beginnings of MI5, effectively. And the, the magistrates in the East End were used by the Home Office as the, the front line against these radical societies by running spies, infiltrating them, generally keeping an eye on them. And what it appears was happening was that um, Major Wright was tailing James Hatfield and was sitting behind him in the theatre. And when Hadfield stood up to fire the gun, either he missed genuinely and was arrested or Major Wright sort of grabbed him by the shoulder before he could shoot it. <clears throat> either way, he, he missed and Major Wright uh, picked up the gun. Uh, there was no mention that he was in any way other than just an attendee of the theatre in, in all of the official documents. And he was interviewed as a witness, uh, gave his story as a witness uh, slightly bizarrely, was allowed to keep the gun, um, and took it home and gave it to Joseph Mercer on as a as a, a sort of present to his boss, I think. Uh, but it was very clear from the records that Major Wright was involved in spying, and that that for me is the key to the story because. Merceron essentially was the devil the government knew and, and it suited the central government to tolerate however corrupt they were, uh, turn a blind eye to uh, some corruption in the East End if it meant that we didn't have a revolution and we didn't have these um, secret societies shooting at the king etc. So Merceron was really allowed to get away with it for, for an awfully long time until, until 1818 um, the evidence and the, the sort of public outcry just became too much and they, they ended up um, sending him to prison. But the Napoleonic Wars obviously ended by that time, so the, the, the danger was slightly less, although it, it, it clearly still existed. So that's, um, that's how he got away with it. Um, move, moving to his legacy, um, and I'll sort of catapult you through 20 or 30 years of, uh, of the developing poverty and social conditions in, in this part of the East End. Um, this sort of little thematic is my way of just trying to explain the levels of poverty and the levels of um, deprivation in uh, this is Bethnal Green Parish, so it's not the entire East End, it's purely you know, the, the, the civil parish of Bethnal Green. And I'm splitting it between, on the left-hand side, uh, what was called the indoor pool, so that's people in the workhouse. So that, that's, my, that's my workhouse, the yellow and black shape. Um, so in 1800, we had 500 people, roughly, in the workhouse at Bethnal Green. Um, I can't say how many outdoor poor there were at that point. Uh, I've not been able to find a record, but you'll see as we go forward what happens. Um, moving forward to 1816, um, and this is just, of course, beyond the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, you've got this terrible poverty hitting uh, most of the manufacturing districts in, in England, um, but in particular in, in the East End. You've got soldiers and sailors being demobilized out of the army by the thousand and in, in the unhelpful way that the government did in those days, it just threw them onto the streets with no necessarily any work for them to do. Um, and you also got 
uh, a massive economic downturn in the weaving trade in, in, in Spitalfields. So you've got the supply and demand both going the wrong way. Um, thousands of poor people. A couple of quotes here. Henry Hunt, who you may have heard of, Orator Hunt, who was the main speaker at this Sparfields uh, meeting in, in 2016, and later became an MP. He, he was describing a labourer in Spitalfields uh, who, you know, despite his family, had been heard to pray that someone would effectively kill him so that he didn't have to worry anymore. Thomas Buxton, who, who is the, the Buxton of Truman, Hambury and Buxton, the Brewers, uh, again an MP, later uh, very well known for his contribution to the slavery and the ending of slavery. Um, he was a big campaigner for, for better social conditions in, in Spitalfields and Bethnal Green. And he, he articulated, this is, this is his speech in, in Parliament, I think, and he was talking about the deprivation in Bethnal Green and how the, the week before he spoke, someone had been found lying in the fields, dying from the cold uh, and effectively being eaten by rats. So th there was a clear recognition around 1816 that things were not going well. Uh, and to introduce a, a, this character here, John, John Bob of Beaumont, again, uh, quite well known in, in the East End uh, as the originator of what is now Queen Mary College. Um, so Barbara Beaumont was a, a sort of multi-talented uh, businessman, philanthropist. He started some of the first insurance companies, uh, companies that now uh, part of Royal Sun Alliance um, and Aviva, I think. Um, he uh, was a painter of miniatures to the to the royal princes. Uh, he owned, built and owned the rather lovely building that sits at Piccadilly Circus, called the County Fire Office, which was which was his insurance uh, headquarters. And he had this philanthropic idea of creating a community in Whitechapel, um, where there would be factories, houses. Um, social housing, and he got the land and he was setting about building it. And he went to the local uh, licensing magistrates for a license for a pub and was told by Mercer on that he couldn't have one, despite all of these brothels that Mercer had licensed in Shadwell. Uh, so Barbara Beaumont sort of went, got behind this big campaign to publicise what Merceron was doing. He was probably, more than anyone, the man who ended up getting, getting Merceron sent to prison. <clears throat> and this was uh, an open letter that I think he wrote to the Times uh, that says, um, you know, despite how poor everybody is and what the social conditions in the country are, you've got magistrates who are dipping their hands into the public purse, manipulating rate assessments upwards for their uh, for the people who they don't like and downwards for their friends. Uh, there's no uh, retribution to these people and, and, and went off on this big campaign that, that ended up with Mercer on in court two years later. So going back to, to, to the numbers, um, by 1826 we got the workhouse pretty much full, I would say. It was probably built to accommodate probably less than 600 people, so I think, I think it was built to accommodate about 500 people. So it was already more than full and you've got the, the beginnings of uh, a build-up of people who are effectively receiving um, you know, what I'll call benefits uh, in today's parlance from, uh, from the state because they're, they're not working or they're otherwise unfit to, uh, or unable to, to work. What then happened is you get these numbers catapulting. So by uh, eight, end of 1826, you've got 800 people in the workhouse, 600 people outdoor poor, 
1828, it's the workhouse is now, you know, double full, thousand people sleeping several to a bed. You've got 800 people outdoors. And it then gets worse and worse and worse. So by 1829, you've got um, two and a half thousand people outdoor poor. By May 1829, it's 5,000. By 1832, it's 6,000. Um, so those numbers just keep spiraling upwards and upwards to the point where um, the whole system breaks down because there's, there's not enough people in work uh, to, to be able to pay the poor rates for the people who are out of work. And communities like Bethnal Green, where you haven't got that sort of traditional structure of a, you know, what, what you'd call a squirearchy, where there's a lord of the manor and you've got some wealthy people who, who've got the capital to employ everybody else. In Bethnal Green, you've got uh, at the top of the pyramid were dozens and dozens of small businesses who might employ, you know, at most a dozen people. And it, it reached a point where those small employers were themselves going bankrupt because they couldn't afford the poor rates to, to sustain society. So the whole, the whole uh, community system was, was going down and down. On top of that, you started to get, uh, it, you know, it's um, interesting talking about this during a pandemic. Um, and obviously at the time I wrote this, I had no idea what it was like to, to be in a pandemic. Um, but this is the time that cholera came. Typhus was pretty endemic in this part of London. Um, quote here from Sidney Smith saying, you know, the quality of drinking water in London is terrible. Um, there was a lovely picture um, called Monster Soup, published around the same time, around the time of the cholera epidemic, um, illustrating the sorts of creatures that you might theoretically see if you put a, a microscope to, to your drinking water. Um, and this got worse and worse during the 1830s and Merceron had come out of prison and, and had you know, spent two decades still running Bethnal Green but increasingly negligently in terms of maintaining the sort of infrastructure that any society, any urban society needs and despite the fact that whatever money there was was still going into his own pockets and he was getting wealthier and wealthier so by 1838, uh, the Poor Law Commission sent in a chap called Thomas Southwood Smith, who was the, I guess he was the sort of Chris Whitty of his day, um, to, to go and investigate the, the sanitary conditions of Bethnal Green. And this is a quote from his report in 1838. In many parts, fever of a malignant and fatal character is more or less prevalent. Uh, there are places where it's in every house, whole families have been swept away, finding six people in a bedroom all dying ill together. Bethnal Green is a swamp, um, many streets underwater, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, you know, he, he went on, this is a sort of catalogue of street by street um, catastrophic conditions, and he lists the individual streets that he's talking about, and you've got, you know, dead cats and dogs lying around, people lying ill, sharing bedrooms with other people who are ill. Um, of course, you haven't got any um, modern sanitary facilities. You've got open sewers. And the, the local authorities were broadly ignoring this. And, and certainly one of, the, one of the people who was interviewed, who, who was a, one of the Bethnal Green uh, sewers commissioners, denied even knowing that cholera was present in, in Bethnal Green, despite abundant evidence to the contrary. 
Um, so no surprise, this, this is one of Cruikshank's uh, illustrations of Oliver Twist. Um, and it's no surprise that Bill Sykes, who's the sort of aggressive looking chap on the left hand, on the right hand side, sorry, uh, that Dickens, when he wrote Oliver Twist in 1838, had, had Bill Sykes living in Bethnal Green. Um, and, and the passages where he describes uh, Sykes walking through Bethnal Green are actually very kind to it if you compare it uh, to what was written in the contemporary sanitary reports that were written in the same year. Um, Dickens toned it down a lot, I guess, for his um, genteel audience. So uh, it, no surprise that you see Bethnal Green, I think, becoming, certainly at that time, the worst slums in, in the capital. Uh, Engels wrote his um, Condition of the Working Class in 1844, so that's just five years after Mercer Island died. And this, this quote is specific about Bethnal Green, such a mass of helplessness and misery. Uh, nation, I blush that these things can be possible. Um, and it went on and on. And then the, the best one in terms of specifics, that's a, that's a picture from the Illustrated London News. Um, but Hector Gavin, and you may have come across uh, Hector Gavin's uh, wonderfully titled Sanitary Ramblings in Bethnal Green. And, and Gavin was another doctor who was sent in to investigate uh, in 1847, I think. And this map is taken directly from his book and it's, it, it's in quite poor condition. But broadly speaking, the grey, with, with the exception of the, the line, which is just a page turn and, and halfway up, uh, sorry, I'll show the cursor, ignore, ignore that mark there. But broadly, the dark shading in this picture is, is meant to illustrate the degree to which cholera is present. So you can see hot spots of cholera around this area here. Uh, around the cemetery, unsurprisingly, uh, around the this is and this is the new workhouse, the Bethnal Green Union workhouse that had been built up near Victoria Park. Uh, but broadly, this whole area to the west, uh, bordering on uh, Shoreditch and Spitalfields, and that that of course the, the the black line is the is the railway line coming out of um, Bishopsgate, so that will help you sort of realise where that is. Um, that's where the worst of cholera was, and. That's my little parallelogram from earlier. So that is the Red Cow estate that Merceron was personally the landlord over. And you can see it's sort of smack in the middle of the worst cholera areas. Uh, this is a blow up from the Hallwood map showing the same area. So the, the, the streets on, uh, on the outline, I'll just move the cursor so you can see it. Those, that is the boundary of the Red Cow estate. Uh, I've ringed Swan Street because Gavin spoke specifically about Swan Street and here's a quote and I'll, I'll let you read it but it it singled Swan Street out as an abomination disgraceful condition uh, he said it was the worst street uh, that he'd been uh, told about by the parish medical officers there were as many as 14 people sleeping in a room um, and this is a street that Merceron was personally the landlord over so it, you know this gets quite close to home a uh, couple of other places, again, areas that Merceron was very involved in, uh, the aptly, perhaps unaptly named Pleasant Place, uh, the Ne Plus Ultra of street abomination, um, black slimy mess, compost of clay, putrescent animal and vegetables, Pandora's box of dead cats and dogs um, in, in every stage of decomposition. So these guys didn't hold back in describing these conditions. 
Um, and, and there you have Gustave Doré uh, coming along not long afterwards, who started to illustrate this for, for wider consumption. And uh, we think this picture is um, Harrow Alley in Aldgate, where the uh, Still and Star pub is. We think, we think that's the Still and Star pub. Um, but there are obviously you know, dozens and dozens of Doré etchings that, that, that show similar pictures. Here's Charles Booth, again, moving forward a couple of decades. Um, this is the bit of Charles Booth's map that shows the same area. And again, I've shown, I've highlighted the, the Red Cow Estate. And again, you can see the conditions here in, in Mercer on territory are as bad as they could be. They're all in, in, in Booth's color system, you know, dark blue and black, which are his worst colors, showing the worst poverty and the most depraved conditions. So, this really was, and uh, I, 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 I don't want to suggest at all that Joseph Merceron single-handedly kind of destroyed Bethnal Green or that it wasn't bad in other parts of the East End, but the evidence from these sanitary reports, which are, which are very contemporary with, his, uh, with the end of his career, are, are highly scathing of the parish officials who went out of their way to try and prevent these uh, inspectors from coming. Uh, refused to cooperate with them when they did come and sort of denied all responsibility when they started to highlight what was wrong. So some of this does stick with, with the parish officials and um, uh, Merceron over the course of his career, I'll just need to look this number up and make sure I get it right, but in, in, between 1800 and 1812, uh, Bethnal Green collected uh, poor rates of a total of £53,000, which doesn't sound very much money in, in, in today's terms, but obviously you've got to multiply by at least 100. Um, and I, I, my, my best sort of comparison of that number will be, say, £4 million. So, so Bethnal Green had levied, let's say, £4 million on its inhabitants in poor rates. About 25% of that disappeared. Uh, and it's believed that Merceron uh, personally, or he, he and his close associates personally stole that money. Uh, and there were some interesting stories about uh, a government inspector came and, and accused them of taking thousands and thousands of pounds from a, a central government grant that had been given to, to help the poorest people. And Merceron came out with this story that his counting house in Bethnal Green had been broken into and all the receipts had been stolen. And when you realise that this guy was kind of the godfather, um, you wouldn't have broken into his counting house um, and, and got away with it. So it was just, you know, it was just a story. Um, but he got away with it. Um, and nobody ever, you know, with this one exception of a piddly two years in, two years in prison, uh, living in the most luxurious part of the prison at a time when other people were being you know, undrawn and quartered or transported for seven years for stealing a pair of socks. Um, you know, there were definitely two sets of rules at play here. So, um, moving on to parallels for today, and I, again, I, I won't be political, but I, I just wanted to show, and this, this was contemporaneous with me finishing the book. So I, I, I published the book at the end of 2016. Um, and there was a story that was pretty current at the time. Those of you who are locals will have seen it. Um, but the, the Look for Ramen story was reasonably current at that point. Um, these are all clippings from newspapers from 2015 at the, at the earliest. And the, 
the clip that says the rotten borough charges, there are a dozen bullets there. Most of those bullets are things that you could say, yep, Merceron did that or did the equivalent of it. Uh, it's, it's an astonishingly similar story of, of corruption in local government. Um, uh, and it just shows how endemic these things are. So I, I, I do think that Beatrice Webb, you know, certainly wasn't right about everything, but she was, she was right about the conditions that can be created in local government if you don't have checks and balances. And I think most of us in today's society would say, the answer is to have the checks and balances, is not to take the power away from local people. Um, the answer is you put decent checks and balances in that stops these local dictators getting into power and, and keeping it. But, but uh, you know, we've seen it happen here. Um, Merceron, to my astonishment when I discovered this, because I, I ignorantly thought that um, you know, people didn't vote in the elections until after the Reform Act, uh, Joseph Merceron was democratically elected by the people of Bethnal Green every year for 50 years um, in, a, in a proper election, almost, you know, sub, an election subject to all these abuses. Um, and it certainly wasn't a secret ballot, so it was, it was easy relatively to, to abuse it. But he didn't, he, he wasn't a dictator. He was, he was a democratically elected local politician who bribed people to vote for him. So uh, it, it, it could happen and it, and it still kind of can happen. Uh, this is uh, the, the right hand side of the slide. This is taken exactly from the website of the East London Advertiser on the 26th of April 2017. Uh, there was a nice little review of my book because uh, I think I did a talk at the Wanstead Tap or somewhere. Uh, and the very next article was the Look for Ramen story. And I thought, I thought it was marvellous that the, the East London advertiser managed to put those two stories together on the same day. Um, so I think that is probably it, other than, other than Poldark, which sort of, to my slight amusement, happened last year without me, without me really knowing about it until afterwards. Um, somebody obviously read my book and, and decided they liked... Um, the Merceron character and, and Debbie Horsfield, who's the writer of Poldark, uh, wrote him into the, the, the last series. And uh, Tim Dutton is the actor there. They, they gave him this kestrel, which I don't, I don't believe he actually had a kestrel, but it, it worked beautifully on the TV. Uh, just made him this sort of weird, sinister character in the background. Um, and I thought they made a really nice job of it, actually. It was, it, they, they invented a lot of things, but they got, a, they got across for me the sense of this uh, ostensibly um, very reputable character, leading magistrate, quite powerful, who under the scenes was doing all sorts of bad stuff. So I was really pleased um, that, that they picked up on it and, and I think they did a good job of it. So that is probably it, I think. Um, quote from Debbie Horsfield saying that um, she thinks Merceron was the worst Poldark villain of them all. I'll, I'm not really a Poldark watcher, so I won't. Uh, I'm not sure I can comment on the other Poldark villains, but it was pleasing to see. Um, but that's about it. So I'm, uh, I'll, I'll hand back Tony, I think, and thank you. Allow you to have yeah. a comfort break. That's fine. Thanks very much. This, just on what you've just said, actually, Julie, when I was just looking up your book on Amazon, uh, and if, if, if you like, I can put the link to where your book is on Amazon in the chat box. That would be wonderful. No, no money will change hands, obviously. Oh, in that case, it's not happening, mate. I'm sorry. I'm, not, I'm up for bribes. But when I looked at the Amazon uh, description and the book, underneath your book was a book about Vladimir Putin. 
which I thought ah, was also up yeah, so I could possibly comment on that. Doing their job well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we do have a couple of questions that came up in the chat box. So what I'm going to do is well, let's take a comfort break here. Um, and when we come back, um, if I can just take a couple of comments that were in the chat box, that, uh, Julian, um, and then I'll, I'll throw the floor open and anybody who wants to ask a question uh, can do. So it is now... Um, 10 past 8, so I'll pull people back together just about 20 past 8. Is that okay? Yes, yeah, so I can go get a break, have a beer, and when we come back, we'll throw the, we'll ask the questions. And thanks a lot, Julian. That was a terrific, fascinating talk. But uh, yeah, and unfortunately, the, the modern parallels brought it home as well, you know. Thank you. Okay, I'll talk, we'll, we'll talk in 10 minutes, guys. Okay, okay. super, thanks. more centralized in the 20th century and so and from from the 1830s onwards when the, the the Whig government got into power and passed the poor law amendment act etc they did a lot to to change things not always necessarily for the better I think um, but it wasn't really until the 20th century that you saw a big centralization of, of things that we now take for granted as, as are done centrally but in, in, in Merceron's day uh, you know, the people of Bethnal Green as a parish had to do everything for themselves, broadly speaking. Uh, you know, collecting their own rubbish, cleaning their streets, um, maintaining their own their their own uh, paupers, etc. So I, I I do blame I blame the system, which is a was a sort of cheap excuse. Um, but my, my point was really that um, the government were, were kind of making a choice and that they were very deliberately turning a blind eye to local government corruption. There were plenty, there were plenty of corrupt people in central government on a, on a big scale as well. So it was, you know, we mustn't just say that Merceron was the only corrupt person, but they were turning a blind eye to it because it suited them, because there was another problem that Merceron was, was helping them with. Yeah, sure. That, that's the point I was trying to make. Great, thanks a lot, Julian. Um, Sue, Sue Parry, you've got a question. So you know, unmute yourself, and then I'll come to um, Colin. But uh, Sue first. Well, Julian, thank you very much for an absolutely excellent talk. I, I enjoyed that enormously. And if I can just remind people, that in fact, Julian wrote us an article about the boss of Bethnal Green, and I'm trying to remember Julian. I think did it go into October of 2019? I, I think it did. I, yeah, I, I I can't be sure, but it was about that sort of time. It was about yeah. that. So if members want to just reread that article, you'll you'll kind of um, uh, you know be able to read it and and, and perhaps you know take it in yeah. a little bit better. Um, just to say, uh, Julian, you made a, uh, you made some references to uh, cholera epidemics uh, yeah. that, that swept, through, swept through certain parts of London, you know, during the course of the 1800s. Coincidentally, Christine Warman has written an article uh, in this month's journal, uh, and she's called it Pandemic, and she talks exactly about that. Um, and one of the illustrations she suggested we use, and I found it on the internet, and it was copyright free, so it just got better and better, um, is an illustration by John Leach, 1852, and it was published in Punch, uh, A Court for King Cholera. Um, I don't know if I hold it up to the screen whether people can see it. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. yeah. So that's in this, this month's uh, journal, um, and, and there's our 
there's a cover there, it'll be with you shortly. But my question to Julian is, you said that uh, Merchant did two years. What, what was the charge? Um, uh, the charge was, um, so I, I, I drew the analogy with Al Capone because they sort of didn't catch him for any of the big things. And they eventually got Mercer, having failed several times on, on bigger charges, mostly because he bribed either the, 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 the plaintiffs or, or the judges or possibly the court officials. Um, but he was eventually uh, imprisoned for stealing £925 out of the poor rate which again you multiply by hundreds it's not as small as, as it sounds but it was not on the sort of scale that he was you know he, he did all sorts of things and, and certainly took money on a much bigger scale than that and this was the 925 pounds bizarrely was his legal fees for his previous court case so they, they took him to to trial in 1813 and he bribed somebody to drop the case uh, his legal fees for that came to £925 and he couldn't bear to pay it himself so he charged it to the parish and took it out of the poor rate fund and, and covered and devised a really quite elaborate mechanism for covering it up so that it didn't get spotted in the in the audit of the parish accounts so somebody eventually spotted that he'd done this and that's what he was that's what he was caught for in fact, he added to his legal bill, he added something like five pounds for the taxi fare. <laughs> which made me smile. And so when he came out of prison, he, he just went back in the same yeah. role. So he, he, he went back into Bethlehem Green and there was a sort of two or three year period where he was tussling for power with the people who'd kicked him out. And then uh, Joshua King, who was the, the, the rector, uh, his his father died in Cheshire, where they came from, and, and bequeathed him a slightly more attractive um, benefice in, in Birkenhead or somewhere. So he hightailed it out of Bethnal Green and gave up and sort of left the field clear for Merceron. Thanks, Julian. Sue, if I could just, uh, on cholera, um, Something I noticed this morning that, that made me swallow hard because uh, it, it really brings the current situation into, into context. And I'm just, I got some numbers in my book about cholera deaths from the 1831 epidemic. And it says in, in the country as a whole, there were 71,600 cases and 16,437 deaths, 16,437. Uh, and in London, 14,144 infected and 6,729 died. So, you know, compared to COVID, it was actually quite small. Mm. Everyone goes on and on about the 1831 cholera epidemic. Mm. I know there were bigger, there were bigger ones later in the in the late 19th century, but 1831 was the first one. But compare that with with the, with the population of the country, and, and yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. there's a, not a lot of difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you very much, Julian. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, I just noticed that nearly half of those deaths are in London as well. Eh, from yeah. Yeah. Density of population that probably is, and, uh, you know, the infected water being there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question is going to come from Colin. Hi. Uh, Julian, thank you very much for the presentation. It was fantastic. And just to let you know that I'm just about to start to read part three 
belligerence. Fantastic. And That's the best bit, I think. Right. And um, I'm, I'm, I've just turned 70 and I was born in Bethnal Green and I was so in the mid 40s and I stayed there until I got married to a Bethnal Green girl in the 70s. So I know a lot of Bethnal Green families and I know what they were like. I'll leave it at that. But um, my question to you is reading your book um, it took you 10 years to write this book and during that 10 years I, I'm sure you were disappointed but were you not vaguely suspicious that you did not find an image of Joseph? Um, well, uh, yes and no I think Colin and thank, thanks for the question and also thanks for, for reading it. Um, I so first of all, I, I wrote it in sort of probably three years, um, but then for all sorts of reasons, it took about ten years to get it published. So I wasn't I wasn't actively working on it all that time, but I was thinking about, and certainly I was hunting for the image all that time. And certainly, if one had come up, I would have been delighted. Um, all sorts of thoughts have gone through my head, um, and certainly I was. I, They've sort of weakened as time has gone on, but I was I was very suspicious to start with because I I decided that nobody possibly could have not had a picture. Mm. Um, certainly, somebody as as um, sort of well known locally as this person was, and I then thought, well, are there any are there many pictures of the Cray twins that were not sanctioned by the Cray twins? Um, so there's obviously these wonderful David Bailey photographs that they you know almost commissioned from him and there's a few newspaper photographs but I, I don't see any cartoons of the Cray Twins and I'm not sure if I was a 1960s cartoonist I would have gone there if I you know so maybe there was something of that as time's gone by I've kind of dropped that thought a bit because I just thought maybe this, this is just an accident of history and maybe there was one and it disappeared or maybe this maybe it was really ugly or something or you know, I, I don't know but I, I've, I've sort of stopped worrying about it now. He just seems to be the sort of guy um, that I've, I've met and, and the sort of guy that I've seen before my family knew the Cray family mm. and I, I in my professional life was around people like Idi Amin and Idi Amin would have five or six photographers around him yeah and I and I, I can't I just can't believe that Joseph Merceron did not have a portrait commission yeah and well but my, my I'm in the same place Colin I think but my my sort of on the on the other side of the scales is yeah. if that portrait had existed I think the family would have had it yeah because um, they've got all sorts of other stuff and they've got they've got pictures of other people in the family from much older so there's a, there's a picture in, uh, you'll have seen at the very beginning of my book there's a there's a picture of an ancestor from 1620 yeah, or something yeah. like that yeah. and somebody um somebody carried that picture in a sack over from france when they were you know hightailing it out of france in a hurry if you if you take someone like that he was he was involved at the clerkenwell courts <laughs> yes um that you'll have people from Punch and people like that yeah. caricaturing. Um, I actually went to school at a place called Hugh Middleton where yeah. the jowl was and you could actually walk under and come yeah. out at Clerkenwell Green. So, um, and, and I, I just wondered if there weren't 
something there's got to be somewhere there's got to be a well I, I, you, you hopefully you're right and one day it'll turn out but you're you're right in that um that's what people did because i have subsequently found and this is since, since the book was published i found pictures of two so there's a picture of william mannering in the book um i found a picture of daniel williams who was one of the other senior magistrates in the Tower Hamlets and I found a picture of um, Mark Beaufoy who's also mentioned in one of the one of the mm. yeah they were all in a kind of gang together yeah. and these pictures are all of a type and as you say they're sitting there in their robes looking magisterial and it's you know it's a picture of authority and it would be really surprising if Mercer hadn't had one of those. I'd just like to say to you, Julian, it's a fabulous book. Um, it's wonderfully written. Um, and, and, and just on the subject that you mentioned before, I've just finished reading a book called The Strange Case of the Broad Street Pump. Which, oh, yes. Which is about the cholera outbreaks. And the problem is that when you read it, if you substitute what's happening now, it's yes. almost just substitute cholera for COVID-19. And yeah. it's... Theory. I had the same thought this morning when I was preparing for this. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to your new book, whatever it is. And you may, you may have to wait some time. Really? <laughs> oh, I'll buy it, mate. I That's can't true. even get into the libraries at the moment. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you anyway. Thank you. Great, great questions. Um, there is another one from Lee. Um, Lee, do you want to unmute yourself or do you want me to, to ask it? I, I enjoy the sound of my own voice. <laughs> Great, Lee, go for it. So uh, you mentioned right at the start you'd met the grand grand's daughter, and there was a she said there was a family curse. Yes. Did you give any indication as to what what that was? Whether it was uh, so I, I man. I'd worked out some. Of, I knew about some of it myself. Um, I didn't know all of it. Um, the biggest element was that they they sort of lost most of their money. Um, so Mercer on when he died was worth at least 300,000 uh, and that excludes real estate which would have been you know almost a similar sort of number on top and that all went to his son he had one surviving son uh, who stuck around in the east end he was a solicitor who stuck around in the east end lived, in, lived on Hackney Road all his life um, and then his son, so we're into late Victorian times now, so this is Merson's grandson, he decided he wanted to be a Victorian country squire and moved down into a village in Hampshire, whose name I've forgotten, but basically became the lord of the manor of a, of a place in Hampshire and, and either built or bought this enormous manor house in Hampshire. And that's where the family lived right the way through until the the beginning of the 20th century. So this, this lady, uh, Mrs. Kendall, that I met, who was, who was in her mid-90s when I met her, the reason she hated Beatrice Webb was that Beatrice Webb's book had come out in, in 1906 or something like that. And a few years later, the young Miss Kendall, or Miss Merceron, as she was then, was presented at court because uh, they were that sort of people. Um, and just as she was coming out and going to all these debutante balls and being introduced to Edward VII or whatever, uh, this book came out saying her great-great-grandfather was a crook. So that, that was the first she said they'd heard of it and that the family had kind of rewritten history internally and 
destroyed all the records of the trial and perpetuated this story about how you know they were they were of you know, laws of the manor and then uh the house first of all the house mysteriously burnt down um and killing some of the occupants and they then lost all their money i'm not sure you could put this to a curse but they most of the east end obviously disappeared in the war and a lot of their money was tied up in east end property and disappeared with it and would have been uninsured i guess um but then there were some more personal things um which i which i probably shouldn't go into but there were you know members of the family who who, who suffered things illnesses etc so you know there were there were a number of things and I'm, I'm not sure that she necessarily believed in it but she was sufficiently near the end of her own life to to be open about it thanks julian i've got um want to come back to sue um sue do you want to unmute yourself you've got another question just about the coral figures yes First of all, sorry, the, the letter C on my keyboard has decided not to work. So my, <laughs> yeah. my spelling is not quite as bad as, as it is. Do you, do you have any information on the horror epidemic at all? On the horror <laughs> e e epidemic, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah um, I, while somebody else was talking, I just had a quick Google, like you do. Um, and in 1830, the population of England, I couldn't find one for, for, for Great Britain or the United Kingdom. Well, it wasn't. Quite a, was it the United Kingdom? Yes, it was the United Kingdom. Uh, but for England, it was 12 million in 1830. Right. And in 2019, the population of England was 56 million. So right. you can multiply by about four and a bit. Yeah. So what, what were those figures again for, for deaths in the 1830 cholera epidemic? I think I said... Uh, 1830 or something. 12,000. 12, you caught me out now, Sue, because I've been <laughs> on the page. Sorry open. about that. Sorry. Sums is what I do. Uh, 6,700 London deaths. Yeah, for London. Yeah. Okay. And you haven't got. Uh, and, uh, well, for the country as a whole, and I, I don't know whether the country is England, yeah. but it probably is. 16,500, say. Okay, so I think you can oh, multiply it, it by it four forward. and a bit to make yeah. a comparison. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're about 46,000, aren't we? But that's for the whole of the United Kingdom. Um, I, would, I would suggest it's looking similar at the moment, and of course it's not the end yet. Um, yeah. so it wasn't modern medication back then either, so... Something like this, like we've been higher about, you know, ventilators and uh, sure, and mm, quite right. Yes, which kind of suggests that in fact our figures are worse, isn't it? Because if if, mm. if, if people haven't have been ventilated or, or or modern medicines used, the death toll would have been a lot higher. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's being so cheerful as keeps me going, really. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, yes, thank you for that, Julian. Thank you. Um, Julian, there was just one thing I wanted to ask you. Um, you were talking about the fact that obviously there is no picture, portrait, or any. any yeah. um, is there a description of him anywhere? Anybody written down what he actually looked like? No, there's one. There's one really very cryptic uh, mention only in. It's in the book, and it's it, can, it comes from the Times, so it's a, it's a reputable source. But it's a slightly sarcastic one, and it talks about the wideness of his mouth. Um, but it's in the context of him having his mouth open to receive bribes. So I don't know oh. whether it's 
actually oh, okay. genuinely talking about his mouth or whether it's just having a go. <laughs> but that was it. Yeah. Flip. And the gun that you found, the gun that in the salt, yeah. any evidence that he actually used it? No, I don't think so. And I, it, it, it's, it's got an interesting, well, it, it's a gun that was famous for a day, obviously. Um, what we know from the records of the trial was that Hatfield, it wasn't even Hatfield's gun, he bought it from a pawn shop that morning. So it, it, he, um, Hatfield was working as a, as a labourer in a silversmith somewhere in the city and he borrowed, he borrowed two shillings or five shillings from the guy that ran the, the silversmiths, went to a pawn shop, bought the gun uh, went off to Drury Lane and shot it. So it, okay. you know, it, he only owned it for a day. Okay. I don't know what's happened. So I, I, nobody knows what the Mercer family have done with it, other than they've had it in their sub drawers for 200 years. Amazing thing to find. Okay, um, the only other thing to mention is I have put that link to Julian's book in the chat. So if you want to check it out, just click on the link, it'll bring you straight there. I mean, unless there's any other questions, um, we can we can wind up and um, again Julian it's been a fantastic evening thank you so much you were our first ever webinar and it was a cracking one I think we've all enjoyed it and uh, again a big round of applause if you've all got your, your microphones turned off thank you very much indeed Julian for a terrific talk and I'm really looking forward to getting a copy of the book well done. Thank you, well done. Thank you, Thank you for having me. It's been, a, it's been a great experience from my point of view as well. And you're, the, you're the first people who haven't cancelled my talk all year. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a message from Doreen. Thank you, Julian. A fascinating talk. Thanks, Julian. Thank you all very Doreen. Um, okay, well, listen, everybody. Um, again, Philip, thank you very much. Really interesting. Thanks so much. Ian, excellent opening talk. Yeah, well, hopefully the, uh, this talk will bring you back for more. So as Sue was saying, hopefully there'll, there, there will be another talk in, uh, in October. You'll be let know. We will be informed about that. We'll send you the link. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks for engaging, for all your questions. And um, we'll see you at the next one.